May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and while mental wellness should be focused on every month and every day, we are taking a moment of intention to reflect. I hope you enjoyed this special episode. What has the COVID-19 pandemic been like for mental health workers, especially in hospitals? I haven't heard much, so I wanted to learn. Fortunately, my friend Sheila and her friend Ben, both licensed clinical social workers working in a hospital setting, were eager to reflect on their experiences after a year living and working in a pandemic. I I work at an inpatient uh, psychiatric unit, and so I work with both adolescents and adults in that. And um, like while I'm there, like, you know, I'm providing, um, you know, case management and connecting people to resources and all of that other stuff, but I also run groups. This is Sheila. We've been friends for a long time. She's always been dedicated to helping others. Who came through our unit, but when like COVID hit, that just like put everything into disarray in terms of like what we are able to offer, who, you know, can, you know, and the huge thing about visitors coming in, but like, and I, you know, that's something really impacted uh, like people's experience in the hospital. So I'm, I'm also at the same hospital, but I work on the medical floors. Um, so primarily just with adults, once in a blue moon with children. Although That's Ben. He works on the medical floors the at the hospital. And so, um, you know, I've seen the ICU during the pandemic, the regular adult floors, the emergency room. It has been a wild year. You got to figure the mental health toll on that is going to take even longer to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. And what normal was before, which wasn't necessarily the greatest to begin with. Yeah, I think that there has, there, like there have been kind of articles here and there about the mental health and it just kind of, I think before it was sort of like the maintenance, just kind of like, what can you do to stay sane during this time? You know, like, how do you, you know, mm-hmm. and then and I think like just in looking at the articles over time, um, it's shifted from being focused on like the impact of COVID and whether or not it's real and all of those other things, right? And the the thought process um, like of like being able to accept this as like an actual pandemic that everybody in the entire world is um, experiencing and shifting to like, how do you, how do you maintain your sanity through this time? And then like, I also noticed the shift of just like this whole thing of like, how do you like that? It's okay that you're not doing anything, right? It's mm-hmm. like, it's that whole thing of like, you're not, you don't have to learn a new skill or do all of these things. And then um, I think there was like a New York Times uh, article recently that's called, there's a name for the blah you're feeling, it's called languishing. And so hmm. it's this idea of like, where are people emotionally now? And, and it's also- The New York Times article that Sheila's referring to is titled, There's a Name for the Blah You're Feeling, It's Called Languishing by Adam Grant. He writes, Languishing is a neglected middle child of mental health. It is the void between depression and flourishing, the absence of well-being. You don't have symptoms of mental illness, but you're not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. Languishing dulls your motivation, disrupts your ability to focus, and triples the odds that you'll cut back on work. It appears to be more common than major depression. And in some ways, it may be a bigger risk factor for mental illness. And I think there's that languishing of like wanting something, but not really knowing when that's going to come or if it's going to. And in that, you know, in sight of that trauma, because I think that's a huge component 
And there's this really interesting thing that I've been noticing. And it kind of goes back to what Sheila was saying about the idea of language mm-hmm. or, or anguish even. And then there was this period of it's okay to do nothing. Like you can sit in your PJs and you can bake bread and you can watch Netflix for six hours a day and it's acceptable. And everyone's feeling like this is acceptable. It's okay to be kind of blah. And then it, that's when it, you it, saw the, the PJs like come out of the woodwork. <laughs> Everybody like just walked around in their PJs everywhere. It was amazing. Right. Not, not putting on clothes for, you know, weeks on end or the, the Zoom top, right? But We've then- seen throughout the pandemic that diminished resources made things worse. Less jobs, less commerce, less health access, less vaccines. But what about the drastic decrease in healthy mental and emotional space? Almost like mental health or outlets for mental health is like a finite resource. And now people, once you hit a certain wall, it's like people are competing over those outlets. So like, you know, I think about the school system, um, you know, whereas in the beginning it was like teachers are heroes and God bless them for doing what they're doing. You know, they are working from home. This isn't impossible. We have so much empathy. Now you have this scarcity of like, no, kids need to get back in school because the parents' bandwidth is out. And I've talked to some parents and even my coworkers, and their thought is, it doesn't really matter if it's safe or not. And that's a different debate, but mm-hmm. we need our kids out of the house because you know, we're competing for this mental health wellness. It's us versus you. And either we go back to work and have some sanity or you teachers go back to work and have, Mm. you know, insanity or whatever the alternative would be. But it's almost turned into this like competition for a resource, even though you don't really think of it that way, because normally everyone just does what's good for them. And Mm. you figure out ways to cope on your own. You're not competing with anybody else. So it's just like a weird dynamic, I think. Like there is this blanket of anxiety that just covers the world um, since this pandemic. And so mm-hmm. we're trying to function and we're trying to do all these things, but it just sits over everybody. And so you're trying to breathe through this. Um, and it's just uh, like it, it, it was like overwhelming because there's not, you know, we don't know when it's going to end because it's complicated, right? With the whole schooling thing, there's like people, parents need to go back to work. Sheila works in the psychiatric department of the hospital, and that's for patients that are in immediate crisis and typically are admitted for three to five days. This includes young people. To not have that place, not have like the social space that they're used to, um, and to be suddenly like thrown, especially like the teenagers that, that go through our unit, right? Like mm-hmm. at, especially adolescents who need that peer interaction they have to learn how to do it like like virtually and and but then also in a place where they're sort of disengaged and like the home setting may not be like the greatest like like just the desperate need for these teens to also like be going back like to be able to interact with not people having the social support being isolated in many cases you're talking about direct trauma mm-hmm. being actually you know stuck in the house with a potential abuser and it doesn't need to be necessarily like overt abuse for that to still feel like a traumatic situation because it's normal for even you know just teenagers to have conflict with their parents that's the process i think typically with parents and teenagers is their conflict there's part that's part of identity development and normally what teenagers do is they can escape that in some ways they have social support they have friend groups they go out and do activities and there's actually no way to avoid those relationships that are in conflict or are building conflict. And then it's just going to make all of those tensions 
worse and, and build right. up and build up with no outlet. And the, you know, I, I think about trauma in a lot of different ways. There's overt trauma, there's kind of what I think of as like passive trauma. And that's not necessarily like someone is hitting you or physically abusing you, but it's kind of traumatic to your development if you're stifled in a certain way. And this goes across the age spectrum. Like you talk about teenagers not getting that, but even as, as young as little kids, like speaking from personal experience, I have a, a young nephew who's um, just, you know, about one and a half and he lives across country. He's actually never seen another family member except for my sister because he was born a little bit before the pandemic and he's had no social interaction with family, hasn't gone out anywhere. Their older child, who's almost five, has been out of school and basically hasn't interacted with any kids in over a year. And so you think about the trauma developmentally, it's younger kids too. Like, I don't even know which is worse. I guess you shouldn't compare, but across the age spectrum, this traumatic experience is, is really going to affect everyone's neurology. It's going to affect developmentally, how they are able to relate to each other, socially develop. All of these kinds of things are trauma. And so it's, I mean, we'll see what the toll is going to be, but it's, it's going to be across the age group. It's because of insurance, or I should say lack of access to insurance. Many emergency rooms are the primary care providers for the unhoused. Ben's experience in the emergency department provides him a front row seat to their experiences. Where all of a sudden resources were available and you'd think, oh my God, this is the first time in three years. I've been able to get someone who wanted shelter, shelter reasonably quickly and reasonably safely. And then that would last for maybe a month. And then it was gone and you'd go back to nothing. And then it would maybe pick up again a couple months later, but it was so inconsistent. I can only imagine if, if it's frustrated for me and I have computer access and kind of a network of people to call and find out about these resources. I can only imagine if you're a person experiencing homelessness that, you know, where the heck are you going to, to find this information that changes every day. Right. And so I think this has hopefully shed some light to the city and to the country about the problems of homelessness and, and the, all the challenges that they're experiencing, trying to find housing. And this has only exacerbated everything. Mm-hmm. So I hope this has shed some light on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been, it's been very crystal clear to me that, Although we have tried our best, I think, and, and there was a lot of good work that was done, the solutions we've had so far are just temporary and they were band-aids. So while the money's there, you have some programs, but did it get people out of permanent homelessness? I don't know. I mean, I don't have all the data on it, but right. the folks that I talked to, they'd be in a program for a few months. And then once the funding dries up, yeah. nothing else had fundamentally changed. So they were kind of right back where they started. Yeah. And so you'd see people out of the hospital system for a few months, but then they're right back at it again. And then you're, you're in that vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wish I had better news or better things to say, but hopefully this will push something forward for that population. It's, it's been rough for them. At this point, it's hard for me to remember what the early days of the pandemic felt like. There was so when much unknown and it was visitors. unfolding so rapidly. Um, there was also times How was it to ride those drastic waves like, the in the hospital? Started, like things were sort of like, I think they were trying to kind of maintain some sense of normalcy. We were still having all these like groups and visitors and all of this other stuff. But then there was like this bit tension building 
with mm-hmm. like the, the staff, with the nursing staff and um, with, and, and a lot of it was like with the staff because we we're like, what are we doing? Like, this is, you know, are we um, like, are we taking into account all of these things? Shouldn't we be more safe and all of these other things? And then eventually, you know, when it, things became super serious and it was like, you know, all serious all around, um, taken more seriously, there like all of these services just like we had to basically cut down a lot of different things mm-hmm. um, and visitors stopped, right? Like that was, and that, so like, you know, if we're kind of moving into this idea of, of trauma. Um, and so when that happened, there was also a drop, like nobody came to the behavioral health, like nobody went to the hospital, not for psychiatric needs, not mm-hmm. for um, like medical needs. Cause that was like medical needs was encouraged um, to, for people not to go, but psychiatric um, needs people didn't go we had there was at one point a few points in time where we had to close certain units and we had six people in a 40 unit bed you know like a 40 unit um psych unit uh, uh for like there was like six people in the entire hospital and then there were no visitors so it was just Ghost town. So incredibly sad and lonely and and kind of like like we're there so there's staff there and so like you know the nurses are there to kind of make sure like throughout the day there's nothing you know like if you needed help but i'm like god it was just so depressing and it's still you know it still kind of can get that way sometimes but when there were no visitors like people just felt like incredibly isolated and and, and sometimes it was just the interaction that with the staff that would get them through. And then that's true even now, like, like mm-hmm. where our numbers are going up and everything, but it was such like a depressing mm-hmm. place to be. We used to have like these family groups where like where parents would interact with um, their, their teens. It would be all of the parents mm-hmm. um, called multifamily groups. And so all of the parents would be able to kind of come together and then along with all of the teens on the unit and then we would have a conversation about like what's going on what's you know and then that had to be cut out and so there's like teens that would get no visitors and then it sort of created this also weird thing where it was a space just for teenagers and there was no family kind Mm -hmm. of work that was going on so Mm -hmm. there's that whole thing of like social engagement human connection Talk about resources that became scarce during the pandemic. Imagine having to go through that as a teenager, especially one going through mental crises. And like in the same place with other kids, yeah, um, with other teens their age that also kind of felt were like you know um, as badly or as poorly as they did, or like where they were having thoughts about suicide and all of this other mm-hmm. stuff. So kids that they can relate to, but yeah. Anyway, it was just like the shift was so evident it was it was so stark between like what was what it was before and then what like just the the depressing sort of thing where when nobody was allowed to come to the hospital and I think that's one of the things like I think you hear about it but I don't think people understood like the toll that it's taken in the beginning, maybe like late spring, summer. And at that point, we didn't know much about COVID. 
And so everyone was just completely scared to be around anyone else. And I remember it, it was so bizarre because you wouldn't want to interact with any other staff. Your normal ways of interacting in a tough setting, you know, the hospital setting where you're seeing sickness, you know, nobody's going to the hospital because they woke up that day and said, oh, I think this will be fun to go to the hospital. You know, everyone who's there is suffering in one way or another, and their families are too. And it's the staff's responsibility to take care of that. And normally the way you get through that, just like any tough job, is kind of the camaraderie with other staff. Except you throw COVID where everyone's potentially contagious and you're keeping your distance and not interacting. And on top of that, you're scared of the patients, you're scared of other staff. And and so that first wave, when it first happened, was just Mm -hmm. chaos. And then everyone's staying out of the hospital. And so by summer, we've got like a full pandemic going on and the hospital is the emptiest I've ever seen it. And half the staff is furloughed. And then you turn back around in the fall and you're so over capacity that they can't have enough nurses or other staff. There literally are not enough people to treat and not enough bed availability that they're opening up makeshift hospitals, you know, and to go from that in the summer to full-blown pandemic overflow, there's not a bed in the whole county in three months later is just a wild swing. And then now we're, you know, more leveled with vaccines out and it's gotten back more normal and you can interact again. But just the variance over the last year in how you feel about your coworkers, how you feel about patients, it's been a total wild ride. And the nurses that are on the front line, they do not get enough credit. And I I know it's, you know, a saying that people say, you know, nurses are heroes, doctors are heroes they do not get enough credit. Mm -hmm. And going back to your point about not having visitors, I mean, as social workers, we spend a lot of time just with the families because Mm -hmm. they can't be there. And Mm -hmm. so imagine your loved one is sick or dying, COVID or non-COVID related, and you can't be there at all. I mean, Mm -hmm. the toll on the patients and the families was enormous. And the people who carried the brunt of that was basically the nursing team. And they were the family for the patient. Either they held up an iPad for an hour so they could talk between running around, you know, having too many patients that they shouldn't have even been covering. There wasn't enough staff, but they really carried the emotional toll of that. And it really can't be said enough just how enormous that was. And I I think people who aren't in the setting really don't get that. And, And maybe on the behavioral health unit, you were a little bit shielded from that because mm-hmm. the, the patients weren't so acutely sick. Um, you know, they were men, in their mental health, but it looked mm-hmm. different. But on, on the medical floor, I mean, it's not something you can put in words that I, I think people can understand unless they were there. I keep thinking about you Despite all the fear, anxiety, isolation, and uncertainty, Sheila and Ben are still full of hope. January 2021 was big for them. The emergence of the COVID-19 vaccines and political change playing the biggest roles. Yeah, it's been a rough year. You know, mm. I, I'm glad things are better. I, I think the turning point, you know, at least for me personally, was when the vaccine came out. And, and luckily, you know, at least for myself, I was able to get it right away and jumped on that opportunity. And I think you know, what Sheila had described before about this blanket, that that's really how it felt to me. It was like, 
it's just this blanket that covers everything. And, and every day you wake up and go to work and you just don't know what's going to happen. And you don't know if you're going to get sick or you're going to get your loved one sick. And mm-hmm. it's just always there. And I think it wasn't until the vaccine, at least for me, that that finally lifted and you could just breathe again. And that doesn't make the work easier and, and people are still suffering. Um, but at least personally, it, it lifted some of that. It made life feel a little more livable. I, I don't know if it felt that way for you, Sheila. I agree. I think with the with the vaccine, I think it was just like, essentially, it was this whole idea. And again, it's of that, like, oh, maybe, maybe we can interact with people again. Maybe I can, you know, like, and um, just being around our coworkers on the unit and stuff that was like, that felt a little more comfortable. And also, I mean, like, so I, on the, on the, at the, on the BHU, I don't like our, our population definitely wasn't as acute. We did have like, you know, people, we did have, you know, like outbreaks on the unit and kind of like how to deal with that, especially in the psychiatric setting where it's like locked of kind of like, what do you do in those settings? And, um, but there was this constant fear of just like what, you know, and like, yes, there, there's that with everybody. Um, but it was just this whole thing where like, we have to go into work and there's no way for us to do what we do or interact with like the patients, um, without having to go in. Um, and, and so like to have gotten the vaccine, it was, it was definitely like a, a sigh of relief, not only because I like was able to get it, um, I was like super excited and just like jumped on it. Um, and like when it was offered, but it was, so not only what it meant to me and to like the people I interacted with, but I also think it was just this sense of like, something is changing, that there's something mm-hmm. that there is movement in, in this, and that we aren't stuck in this place forever. Um, mm. and I think that also of just in the, in that hope of where, and I think it was also, I think the times of just in like the whole January time period where like there were so many things going on, so Mm -hmm. much social change. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, there, that like the, there's just so many, so many things going on in that January 2021, like introduction to the new year kind of where everybody's like, Oh my God, like we've broken through. And then it was just like, Holy crap. Um, what's going on? But it, it, there, it felt like there wasn't as much of that stagnation, although, I mean, you know, it's still there and it's still even there now. Um, Mm -hmm. but it felt, I think that's what, uh, like that added to it was that there was like a sense of, of hope in terms of like, well, if we're getting it, that means people will be getting it soon. But they've also been carried throughout the pandemic by the resilience of the patients that they've worked with. During this, there were so many moments of resilience mm-hmm. and it, it's kind of incredible when you see patients or families or, or nurses or whoever it is, just demonstrate this resilience in the face of what otherwise might feel totally hopeless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're talking to somebody and they can't see their, their family member and they're almost certainly not going to make it out of this if they had COVID or it was, you know, a severe illness. And yet somehow they still are hopeful and and able to carry that or make some sort of meaning. And I think it demonstrates that, you know, we will be okay as long as we do the things as as a society to recognize the collective anguish we're in 
and make that okay to talk about and make that okay to experience. Mm -hmm. But people, I mean, it's remarkable. Even in the midst of this, you still see so much resilience. You know, you see it with the kids, you see it with in the BHU, I'm sure Sheila all the time, Mm -hmm. just when things seem low, people still pull out of it and Mm -hmm. make meaning out of it. So I'm hopeful. And I think since January, there's felt like more of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of an individual thing too, Mm -hmm. is just what is going to give each person that flip, you know, flipping the switch where they go from feeling some sort of hopelessness to then feeling again, okay, well, maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel, or maybe I do have this in me to just kind of push through this. Um, Or maybe I can reach out to different supports that I didn't think about Mm -hmm. to help me through this. And I think that's where we have to go from here. Um, So I think it's important just to mention that with all of the stress we have, there's still that fire within people Mm-hmm. and within society to try to help each other and try to help ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that will be true. Like, I think during the pandemic, what people were trying to do was just to survive. Um, mm-hmm. And then what, so the, the question is then like, how do we start living, right? This, the pandemic, like life like this is here to stay. University of Washington psychology professor, Jane Simone says that we're going to be living with COVID-19 in some way for the foreseeable future. And right now, while the push is for us to get vaccinated, we're also getting a push to return to quote unquote normal. And we're going to have to relearn some things, including that we can hug people. You know, so then, so the question is, what do you do with that? You know, like if this is something like wearing masks and and like having to, like having all of these things kind of going on that we have to do in order to maintain in doing that, like, how do you live, you know, like, how do you continue to do the things that you do? Um, and I think that's the question that everybody and like, that everybody sort of has to, to answer for themselves, right, of just kind of like, what does living look like now in this world, and continue to live, because there is not like, there's not the sense of pause, right? Like, we can't live on pause. It's this is a bubble, right? what what we're in now is a bubble there is no living in here and so this is you know and this is what i like tell tell the patients that i interact with um and so like living is out there but it wasn't right like for for some time there living wasn't out there because it was this pause of like when is this going to end if this is the new norm what does that look like for everybody we've been talking about care mental health care medical care covid-19 care But what about diving deeper into the action of caring? What does that look like, especially in a pandemic? One, it's acknowledging that everybody, regardless of whether they believe this was true or not true, or like, you know, whether they choose to be vaccinated or not, like that everybody lives through, lives through this trauma, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like acknowledging that there was an effect on every single person in this entire world. Ben was talking about giving space for people to be able to talk about that and their own experiences in it, and that there wasn't any wrong way for people to to have handled it because then it makes you feel like this wasn't just a you thing right this is Mm. what this was an us thing and feeling feeling connected in that like we survived this Mm. um and and you know and we're gonna move through this together you know like like as the clinician or as a therapist um this isn't something that i'm 
I like I haven't experienced, you know, like this isn't something I'm not exempt from the trauma Mm -hmm. of what's going on either. And so Mm -hmm. for me to be able to approach like somebody else and being like, yeah, this was actually really hard for me too, can also be like a very um, healing, a very strong and powerful thing to be able to acknowledge for somebody to be able to acknowledge their own kind of pain through all of this. And then um, acknowledge somebody else's like in building a connection through that I think can be really powerful mm. the traumas of a pandemic have been a running theme in the conversation so is empathy the will be how can we take this collective experience and turn it into some sort of collective empathy mm. right mm-hmm. and, and yes, empathy absolutely. is it's mm. always the antidote right and the big question is well why do we have such a hard time having empathy right mm. why can we have empathy in one context but not another and how can we make this pandemic or actually integrate that into our experience where we can say, yes, we all have been through this together, like you said. And how do we translate that into facets where we normally are more unforgiving? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you think about substance abuse or you think about mental health mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe historically we have a hard time doing that. And, and some of that is natural. And, you know, you, you tend to put yourself in in-groups and out-groups and Um, You know, you might forgive someone who had the same experience or the same type of trauma as you, but when it comes to trauma type B, you know, well, just don't drink, you know, I didn't have a problem Mm. with that. So you shouldn't have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. And so I hope the lesson that we will learn from this is to put everything in this, in this basic bucket. Right. And if you can just think of things as like, everyone's inherently just trying their best with whatever tools they had. And some of that is what they were born with. Some of that is their environment. Some of that is unfair and some of that is fair. You know, you, you were born who you are. You had the parents or the environment you had, and that's not in your control. But I think fundamentally people do the best they can with the tools they have and, and generally try their best to learn new tools or, um, you know, sometimes they're unsuccessful, but they're mm-hmm. trying to do well for themselves and generally trying to do well for others. And I think it, it boils down to kind of what I was talking about before, this scarcity, um, in this case, like a scarcity of empathy, right? Like mm. people only have so much bandwidth to mm. tolerate things in other people, but really what that's about is themselves. So if you look at yourself, you want to think of yourself as somewhere on the hierarchy or, um, you know, at, at least if you can say, I didn't struggle with this vulnerability, you're filling some hole in yourself that makes you feel more complete because you don't have to really dig deep and and address your own insecurities or your own vulnerabilities. And so I think it doesn't translate sometimes and we can't see past the semantics of it. You know, like if you struggle with depression and I struggle with drinking, it's semantics. We're struggling in different ways. So how are we going to get through this together? One of the things that makes me more hopeful is how people are, more willing to talk about their mental health. People are willing to talk to a therapist. Mm. People Mm -hmm. are accessing these things. And I think that's like, that's one way to one build empathy, but is, is is to be able to kind of be like process how you got through this yourself. Right. And then to be able to be accepting of where you were and how you got through this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, so I think that that's poss- like that's one way is to be able to be self-reflective and 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 forgiving of however it is that you got through this. 
um, because it was hard for, you know, each and every one of us. Um, it was hard, um, you know, even when we thought that we were okay and then we turned out that we weren't, you know, like all of those things. So um, I think getting help, getting support and having like conversations like these, um, be it with, in private or in like with group, groups of friends, um, I think is really important. Um, but it like, and also balancing it, right? Because I think there was, there was some time even in my own personal life where I was just like, oh God, like every time we talk to people, it's just about like the pandemic always mm -hmm. coming yeah. up. Mm -hmm. I was just like, I just want to talk to you about something that's not about COVID and about something funny that happened. But they're so limited in terms of like, you know, like what you can talk about that it was eventually going to go back to COVID. But in the mm -hmm. few conversations that I did have that, um, where it wasn't so focused on that. It was so refreshing to say like, you know, what were the beautiful moments that happened throughout the year as well that helped you get through it. So maybe we're just waiting for that moment to come where there's enough breathing room and things have cleared up enough and, and life has returned to normal enough that then people actually have the space to reflect and, and find that meaning. But maybe we're just not there yet because we're still in the thick of things. I'm a social worker too, but I primarily work in the realms of community health and health policy because systems change. I mean, that's social work too. And Sheila and Ben asked me for my thoughts. A silver lining out of this is that there are some levels of stigma around mental health that has kind of um, broken through for many people. You know, pretty big deal. It's, it's a shared collective experience that people have had that hopefully can continue. I think on a systemic level, that means the wealth in the world, in our society needs to shift so that the scarcity that you're talking about, Ben, of scarcity of resources doesn't impact all these folks that do want to heal coming out of this pandemic. And we don't want to look at mental health support just in terms of crisis, but we want to look at it as mental health support for thriving didn't think that this would impact them, who thought that they like never imagined that they would be struggling with housing, that they, you know, and this is, I mean, we're talking about people who are more privileged with like, like in, like who make more money or who have felt more secure in whatever, be it whatever race or um, economic class or, um, you know, like any other uh, like identity where they have felt um, like they didn't, think that it would impact them, but, but it has. Right. And so I think there, there is a sense of like, if we can capitalize on this, this change on this, these feelings of like, Oh crap, I can be affected too. I like, like by these things, like it can, it mm -hmm. has, I mean, and it has, right. Mm -hmm. Like you, we see people that were participating in protests and in rallies and in um, like making their voices heard and voting when they hadn't voted before, regardless of whether you believe voting like, like has an impact, but it's like, but making their voices heard or, or like looking into or learning about certain things. And some of it is performative. Absolutely. Like mm -hmm. there's like a huge number that is performative, but like, just like to, to have a shift of people being more aware of how collectively we live on this earth like how collectively we live in this, like in this, like in our country and how each one of us really does have like an impact. You know, there is some evidence to me that things are changing. 
you look at current policy that's going through or, or hopefully going through or maybe going through, um, you know, President Biden's agenda with reforms on, on child care, um, potentially education, mm-hmm. there does seem to be finally now, and, and we'll see, right? We'll see what happens in the next couple of years. But there finally seems to be some sort of collective appetite for redistributing things mm-hmm. and actually taking care or at least um, caring to some extent about our neighbor's children or, or mm-hmm. everyone's children, really, um, or health care to some extent or unemployment, you know, these social safety nets. Mm-hmm. And that's not the, you know, that's not necessarily everyone in this country, but I think people's eyes are much more open and maybe that's the change. And part of that is a lesson in empathy. You know, mm-hmm. I think prior to the pandemic, none of these bills or potential bills would have had, you know, a, a moment on the floor in, in Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it goes through or not is yet to be determined. But the fact that we're having these conversations at huge potential costs tells you that maybe something has changed in the country's appetite. Mm-hmm. And, and what that translates to is the, con- the country's empathy or potential empathy. Mm. So we'll see, but it, it seems like it. And and maybe we're not there with how much it needs to be, mm-hmm. but it certainly seems to be trending where stigma is getting reduced. And hopefully this pandemic is going to be at least an equalizer to some extent of breaking down the stigma of mental health mm-hmm. and breaking down the stigma of, um, you know, what is kind of the floor that we're willing to let people live in mm-hmm. because it's, it's everyone now. And mm-hmm. so let's hope that this carries over for that empathy. Those types of things are needed to actually make some of these traumas and intergenerational traumas go away is when there is a middle class, when the floor is pushed up Mm -hmm. so that kids do have food. All the money that came in this year during the pandemic in the relief bill for children, specifically Mm -hmm. for children, and they're estimating that that's going to cut child poverty in half. Just think about that. That's staggering. And when we're talking about trauma and trauma-informed care, that's Mm -hmm. trauma-informed policy. Damn, let's repeat that trauma-informed policy there's a limit to what therapy will do and you need both that that carries you further or at least that carries you collectively therapy can carry you individually but you need more and hopefully we'll retain some of that from this Big heaping shout out full of love to Sheila and Ben for sharing their knowledge, experiences, and hope. We encourage you to take care of your mental wellness. We have included links to resources in the episode notes. We are also gathering weekly for Friday Vibes, a space to connect, laugh, share insights about parenting, motivate our creativity, and more. Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram at Pop a Culture Pod to get the Zoom details. Thanks again for listening.